Every now and then, I meet someone who's changing the world for the better by their sheer will alone. Whether they're authors, activists, or adventurous, these people are blazing a path with their deep enthusiasm and allowing the world to follow. Their passion is strong, and my passion is to tell their stories. I am Brian Platt, and this is Passion Project. Hey, what's going on, everyone? In this episode, I speak with David Stein. He's the watershed coordinator at Prairie Rivers of Iowa. So while a lot of his work is specific to Iowa and that area, there are a lot of national takeaways and international takeaways that we talk about over the course of the interview, including overall watershed health and what plants, farmers, and local landowners can grow that will actually help benefit the soil and pollinators. Um, it's a really good one. We cover a lot of ground, no pun intended. Um, yeah, I hope you enjoy. And if you do like it, feel free to go ahead and give a rating, review, and a subscription, if I may be so bold, uh, on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your um, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks. Enjoy. All right. Well, hey. Well, I'm here with David Stein. He's the watershed coordinator for the Prairie Rivers of Iowa, who helps manage the area's watersheds and also helps landowners be mindful of conservation efforts in the area. Welcome, David. How are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Thank you for your time for uh, hopping on the call with me in this. Yeah, no problem. So tell us a little bit about the you know Prairie Rivers of Iowa. It's a nonprofit, um, but it's got a couple different projects that you're working with. Would you mind talking a little bit about them and kind of what each one does? Yeah. So Prairie Rivers of Iowa is what's known as an RC&D. So that's a resource conservation and development um, nonprofit. They used to be sort of government funded. So it did a lot of hand in hand work with the USDA and the natural resource, uh, conservation service. Uh, but eventually they just kind of spun off into their own thing and just kind of, uh, became their own sort of nonprofit organizations for, um, sort of environmental management. Uh, so for Prairie Rivers, we mainly have two big programs that we do. Um, the one that I'm involved with is the Watersheds and Waterways program, um, where I help implement a lot of conservation practices uh, within a couple watersheds that we're really interested in. And then the other one that kind of catches a lot of people by surprise is the uh, the Lincoln Highway Heritage Byway yeah. uh, sort of conservation system. So uh, part of our mission statement is really to conserve both natural resources and cultural resources. And that's where the that's where we kind of pick up on the Lincoln Highway. Um, we really try to maintain sort of the the aesthetic of small town Iowa just along that road. So it's kind of a weird mishmash of these two sort of uh, missions getting uh, pushed together into one organization. But that kind of makes us cool. So uh, yeah. it's a really yeah. interesting place to work, and um, it's really cool just kind of meeting everybody that comes through the door. Yeah, that's interesting, and it's it is. I'm glad you said that because I was a bit. You know, it makes sense now when you talk about it, but yeah, it didn't yeah. seem like it, it would fit, but it does because, you know, the Lincoln Highway Heritage is, um, or excuse me, Lincoln Highway Heritage Byway is actually like, you know, over a hundred years old. I was reading that. Oh, yeah. It's like stretches from New York City to San Francisco, like over 3,000 miles, right? Yep. So yeah. when, when we started out with this, we were only in like the middle section of the Iowa portion. But uh, eventually, we just ended up taking on the whole thing, and oh, wow. uh, we have a coordinator of it that uh, works with the other states that fall underneath it. So, a um, lot of lot of 
big working projects on that. It's it's pretty interesting stuff. Um. Well, awesome. So you, but you work specifically with the waterways uh, and watersheds department. So what? Yeah, that's yeah, that's my that's main my main forte. That's uh, that's my department. Yeah. So what does a typical day for you look like if there is even one? <laughs> uh, it's a. Uh... It can be really varied. Um, so a big part of my job is really working as sort of a liaison between uh, sort of the general public as well as state, local, and federal governments. So a lot of my day is working directly with different landowners and uh, people around the city trying to get conservation practices on their land or really assessing um, big swaths of land for different conservation uh projects that we could put in there um, and then kind of coordinating that with uh, different federal programs that might be able to fund them and going into county conservation meetings and working with the board there to see if we can secure more funding for these uh, private landowners. And it's really just trying to bridge the gap between just the normal general citizenry and the government. So um, we fall in a really unique place and really have to be having our foot in both doors, um, sort of as, uh, again, sort of a bridge between the general populace and uh, different government programs that a lot of people might not know about or might not know uh, would help them out in supporting the conservation on their local levels. It's a it's an interesting job. So uh, my days are really varied. It's either meeting with people out in the, on the public or meeting with a uh, government officials are sitting in on official meetings. Um, So it's really cool. Um, Some of the best days, though, are really when I get to go out and visit these people's lands and actually see what they're doing and get my feet on the ground. Gets me out of the office for the day, which I like. Yeah, that's got to be nice. So like, what would be an example of that? Like, let's say you're working with some private landowners, whether it's residential or, or, or a larger farm. Like, what kind of programs would you implement or would you make them aware that you could implement yeah, so uh, a recent example, we just got a call from a pretty large landowner that had an old farm field that they really just converted into just their own little private estate. They built a big house, and now they have this big field of weeds and grass that they don't know what to do with. So it'll be my job to actually draft up like a plan for habitat restoration on their land um, wherever they need it. I need to uh, sort of establish plans for the soil, establish plans for where water will flow through this area, and really pick out the best uh, ecosystems and plants for each of the different little parts of that entire estate. So uh, it's up to me to draft the maps. It's up to me to pick out the individual species and the management calendar for these landowners to really uh, take a look at. Um, and uh, then on the flip side, I do work with a lot of farmers. Um, and they do have large pieces of land, but they don't really manage them the same way as, say, a normal homeowner would. Mm-hmm. Um, so conservation efforts on that and are really more of trying to encourage cover crops to minimize soil loss or trying to implement strips of native vegetation to help with wildlife or pollinators um, or even just putting in like a strip of grass to carry water away from a more sensitive area to a river or wetland where it can sort of pool up and denitrify and uh, sort of get filtered out. So 
kind of, again, stepping in two different worlds of conservation, really more practical on the farm and more aesthetic for private landowners with big houses and big estates. So it's kind of a cool, kind of a good, like cool little sphere of influence, I guess. Call it that. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. Like a, like a cool alchemy of like science and art. Yeah, exactly. Um, wow. So, okay. Yes. Let's talk about that a little bit. So I know you have a lot of experience with pollinators. Um, but like for the soil itself, what, what kind of suggestions you have? You said you mentioned some crops for, um, you know, large farmers for large farms rather. Um, do you mention anything, you know, with monocropping or anything about that? What crops to use together or, you know, how to best utilize the soil in that way? Yeah. So it really depends on what the farmer is going for. Uh, for our job, we really want to minimize the loss of soil. Um, as well as fertilizer, pesticide, herbicide, uh, in terms of runoff. So having sort of a, a continuous cover of root and stem on that land really does minimize this. Kind of drills holes in that soil and makes it sort of act more like a sponge. Um, for pollinators, really, I would just suggest anything with a flowering head. Mm-hmm. Um, I know there's been a lot of buzz with uh, clover and alfalfa, as cover crops. Uh, farmers can then sell it to livestock producers as hay or as just different forage. Um, and while it's getting up and growing and blooming, it really does support those, uh, those pollinators and what actually eats the pollinators. Um, other crops that we tend to recommend, um, if someone had just put in clover or soybean or anything that would fix nitrogen to the soil, we really want them to sort of stay away from that. Um, we don't want too much nitrogen in the soil cause then nothing will grow. Um, so we really recommend things like small grains or grasses or other forage species that, uh, they can sell the livestock. And another one that's getting kind of a big, uh, uptick in recent years because of the pollinator thing is actually buckwheat. Hmm. Uh, a lot of people don't think of it as a cover crop or crops that we usually grow around here, but it's uh it's not a legume, it doesn't fix nitrogen, it's not a grass, it's really just a, a flowering plant that can help a lot of uh pollinators that actually depend on that. So uh that's one of the ones that I really like to sort of sell and promote. It's um it's a it's a cool system that you can get going on when you yeah. when you try to keep something on the ground at all times. Yeah. So okay, so let me get this uh you know, pull this out a little bit. So for every single crop you try and, you know, cover crop you try and, um, you know, get the farmers to plant, you want to have a couple of uses for them, right? Exactly. It sounds like, okay, one of them is pulling out nitrogen, which in large amounts is not great for crops. And one mm-hmm. of them is just, you know, to be used for cattle um, yep. or even a pollinator if at all possible. Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Yeah. I, I live in, um, you know, southeastern North Carolina. And mm-hmm. there are a lot of issues with, you know, we've got a lot of pig farms. So there yep. are, you know, there's a lot of uh, nitrogen in the soil and it runs downstream. Um, but the solution we use, um, or at least some people in this area have, is um, you know, oyster farms. So oysters actually pull oh. out a lot of nitrogen from the water. Um, but I imagine that there's a lot still more, uh, you know, of nitrogen there because there are so many oh, pig yeah. farms in this area. 
Yep. Uh, one of our big issues that uh, I'm really involved in is uh, we're trying to do something that's known as the nutrient reduction strategy. So it's really trying to control a lot of that runoff from both row crop fertilizers as well as giant hog farms that yeah. are everywhere across the state. Um, so it's really developing those systems to keep the nitrogen and the phosphorus in place so it doesn't get into our streams and flow into the Mississippi River and contribute to that dead zone down in the uh, down in the Gulf. Oh, right. So, uh, of course. Of course. Yep. So uh, it's, it's part of my job to try to uh, introduce ways to reduce that at the benefit of both the farmer as well as the benefit of people downstream from us. It's yeah. called being neighbors. Um, it's really trying to... Uh, trying to sell that aspect of it. It's like it benefits you, it benefits our neighbors downstream, everyone's happy, we've got a nice healthy gulf, good for everyone. Yeah, who can complain? Yeah, exactly. So who is reaching out to you in the first place? Is it the farmers themselves? Are there, are there you know, private landowners themselves? Or is it, are you being proactive in finding them? Or how does that process work, at, work itself out? It's a bit of everything to try to reach as many people as we can. Gotcha. So one of our big selling points that we do are what's known as farmer field days. So we will go and we will find sort of a partner organization or someone who's really interested in conservation. Um, and we will use their space or their land to sort of put on an educational program for other farmers in the area to come learn about some beneficial programs. So we're doing one in about a month where we're going to visit someone with a conservation reserve program bit of land, which is really just a lot of native species in an area. Um, the government will pay you to not plant row crop and just plant these sort of beneficial species for wildlife and pollinators. Um, and we're really trying to sell the benefits of that to uh, landowners in the area. And how we try to reach out to them is through direct mailings and social media and uh, even posters up at the local gas station um, get a lot of get a lot of buzz. Um, and then following those field days, we usually have a big uptick in people trying to reach out to us directly. Gotcha. Um, either someone who went to the field day or someone who talked about it. And word spreads pretty quickly, so um, it's a lot of a it's a give and take sort of thing. We initially seek them out, they learn, and then they initially seek us out. It's kind of a a two way system. Yeah. And you mentioned, um, just a quick question about row crop. Uh, yeah. So what, I mean, it, it is, you know, I just looked it up and it is what it sounds like. Crops grown in rows, uh, yep. as the name would imply. But like, yeah. what what are the benefits? What are the um, issues with those? I'm, I'm sure it's probably easier for the farmer to manage row crop. Yep. So in terms of Iowa agriculture, row crop really refers to corn and soybeans. Gotcha. Um Farmers will rotate them out, the soybeans will fix nitrogen, the corn will pick it back up, and then the cycle repeats over and over and over and over again. Um, they, the, why, people, why farmers like them? They sell for high prices. You get a lot of, you get a lot of uh, corn and soybeans out of an entire field. Um, and it's, it's just the, it's a very, it's a super convenient system. Um, you can always guarantee a certain yield of these two items and then you can sell them yeah i bet they're not too temperament temperamental yeah exactly yeah. um the only the issue that comes along with that is there is a lot of reduced uh biodiversity that comes along with it um you get a lot of pest issues there's a uh, there's not a lot of places for pests to go 
and retreat into. There's no wilderness around that area, so they do like to feed on these row crops, which causes a lot of issues. Um, then beyond that, it's just uh, very limited resources for um, other animals or other things to take advantage of. So you're not going to see um, a lot of these pollinator species in a place with just corn because there's no nectar. Right. There's not really a lot of pollen. So um, the farmers like it because you do get a lot of money. It's very lucrative, but the more conservation ecology minded side of the argument is it's really not a great system and it's not too sustainable. So yeah. you get a lot of issues um, either way you look at it. So we're trying to introduce uh, things like cover crops to kind of add a third sort of cover area that could potentially benefit animals or pollinators or things like that. Gotcha. Gotcha. And good examples of cover crops are like, you know, you mentioned this earlier, but like clovers and, and kind of oats and those kind of things, like things you wouldn't really yeah. expect to be in these row crop situations. Yep. Nice. Um, so, but you also do a lot with watersheds and that ties okay. in nicely, you know, with um, you know, what we're just talking about nitrogen and things being downstream of that. Yeah. Um, how does, how exactly does that work in to, you know, this whole system? Yeah, so when we work a lot with, so my, the watersheds that I'm trying to manage are really sort of a, a mix of both very, very rural as well as sort of more urbanized. Um, right now I'm in the city of Ames, which has about a population of around 60 to 70,000, so decent amount of people. Um, so we really try to reduce nutrient runoff from both people's yards as well as businesses and uh, pieces of land with a lot of turf grass. And then we also have to work with farmers and areas with a lot more fertilizer, a lot more, um, a lot more chemical input on that land. So, uh, we really tried to sell the idea of minimizing as much nutrient runoff as we possibly can, because whenever it gets off of a system, uh, either through rainfall or just through water flow, it ends up going into the water, uh, in these watersheds and flowing downstream and causing, causing issues later down the line. Yeah. Yeah. Are those the biggest issues that you find homeowners and, uh, you know, farmers are doing is, is pesticides. Is there anything else, you know, pesticides and herbicides, is there anything else that you find that people are doing that they should just outright avoid or, um, you know, minimize as much as possible? Yeah. It's really uh, a lot of fertilizers too. It's yeah. really trying okay. to minimize those, those runoffs. Um, what we want people to do is put things on their soil and make sure it stays within their soil. Um, so there are ways around it for farmers. Again, there are cover crops, which kind of makes the soil a little more spongy. Um, there's reducing the amount that they are tilling up their soil. So they're not really digging anything up and potentially spreading it out. Then there are other sort of more new and experimental things. Uh, there are really cool things called bioreactors, which are really just a giant pit of wood chips with a bunch of uh, bacteria that sort of eats away at the nitrogen that flows into it. Oh, wow. It's, it's sort of, it's a big sort of science lab that's sort of right next to a, right next to a cornfield. Um, <laughs> that's pretty cool. You'll never notice them, but they're really cool. Um, and for homeowners, we really try to uh, encourage them to minimize any stormwater runoff that might be uh 
running off of their lawn. Since they do have a lot of turf grass, uh, that really doesn't make the soil very porous or spongy, and it kind of slicks away all the all the fertilizer and chemical input that they put on there. Um, so we really try to encourage more garden building, reducing your your lawn input and replacing it more with native gardens. Um, there are systems called rain gardens, which are kind of like a drainage basin that retains water within your yard um, so it won't go into the sewers or the streets or run downstream. Um, and it's really just trying to to work with landowners and saying, hey, these look really nice for your land. They have these benefits and they'll make the ecosystem healthier and you're going to be helping wildlife and pollinators along the way. So um, yeah. if, you, if you'd implement these, these would be great for both the aesthetics of your home and your lawn and your area, as well as everybody else around you. So it's a lot of benefits and it's really just trying to get the word out and sell it to these individual landowners. Yeah. Yeah. I've never been like a lawn guy. I've never been a guy who like oh, yeah. cares about any lawns, but there, there are a lot of people out there that do. And as yeah. much as you hear about like, Hey, we're losing, you know, we're losing forests. We're losing, um, you know, natural land due to mm -hmm. development. A lot of it is actually due to lawns. So if you, yeah. if you kind yeah. of even took a portion of just your boring lawn and turned it into a garden, you could help out a lot, especially with these, exactly. with the survival of these pollinators. When you, when you really think about it, lawns don't make a lot of sense. They're dumb. It's Sorry. It's a carpet yeah. to keep outside. It's a lot of work. It's, yeah. It's just not worth it. Yeah, I've never, I've never gotten it. Um, exactly. But yeah, I mean, you know, I've also never been a homeowner, so I don't yeah. know. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that's awesome. That's that's a great way of utilizing it, making it, uh, you know, uh, practical, but also making it very aesthetically pleasing. So again, there's that science and yep. art that we were just talking about earlier, which is yeah, exactly. really cool. Um, you seem to have a, a variety of projects. How do you prioritize what you're doing? Is it like you know, we were talking about how you do some outreach earlier. Is that kind of what it comes down to? Or are there, you know, a, is a different way of prioritizing what projects come through the, come through the hopper? It's a, uh, it's an interesting sort of balancing act. So we really, what we really need to, to keep in mind when we're going through sort of our weekly or monthly schedule is when we are meeting with our key stakeholders, uh, say governments, employees, the board of directors, so on and so forth, and really trying to keep those main pillars through our month while weaving our way around through the rest of the weeks. Um, and it really also boils down to what events we're planning and how to get those squared away and how to um, sort of prioritize those a little bit sooner than, than anything else. Um, it And some of it is just on the fly as long as we're not working on anything too uh, too pressing, we try to move towards something that just pops up that might be of importance. Um, what I generally tend to focus more toward is is outreach a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, the more people we connect with, the more we're useful and the more we're getting uh, these conservation uh, programs on the ground. So I really try to I really try to prioritize outreach above everything else, but. Um, also keeping our stakeholders happy and keeping, um, keeping our programming up is also a, also a high priority. So it's, 
it's re- it's a it's a balancing act. Yeah. But, uh, all the pieces tend to fall into place, so fingers crossed. We'll be we'll be ready to go. Hey, as long as it works. Yeah, true. Um yeah, and with that in mind, like how do you measure impact? I know that's an important, uh, you know, metric for a lot of nonprofits. How yeah. does that get me- measured and then how does that, you know, how do you continue to build upon that? Yeah, so right now we are mainly grant funded, so we really do have to pay very close attention to metrics. Yeah. So our couple big ones are really people that we've reached um, either through direct mailings or just speaking to or if we set up a booth at a state or county fair, how many people come by there, um, just how many general people reached. Uh, then we go and sort of clarify it a little bit more with landowners, mm. so people that we actually directly mail to um, as well as speak to when we're actually out in their fields. And then the final metric in terms of that are just people with changed conservation behavior. Right. So say if we talk to a farmer that didn't have row crop or didn't have uh, cover crops on their land before and he puts in a couple acres of that and then maybe even some pollinator habitat on top of that, um, we'll have someone with changed behavior. Um, and that extends to people within more urban areas too. say if they replace their lawn with wood chips or a garden or something like that. Um uh, outside of that, we also do uh, metrics about habitat creation. So if someone does change their behavior um, and implements things that could be considered habitat, uh, things like grassland or CRP or... What's CRP? Uh, uh, that's Conservation Reserve Program. So it's uh, planting areas of wilderness in your farm field gotcha. uh, for a couple of years and getting paid to do it. It's a, it's a good deal for farmers. They like to, wow. they like to see the, uh, the wildlife that moves in and it's a cool image to see. It's a little more natural. Um, kind of gives you a glimpse of what was on the landscape before, yeah. before farms. And it's really cool. Do you have um, a lot of people taking you up on that offer? Uh, I think for the past couple of years, it's been really, people have been struggling to find enough uh, permits to get in the program. So people love it. It's a wow. very, it's a very popular program, and I mean, I love it too. So, yeah, uh, if it works for them, it works for me. There you go. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, just going off of the habitat, that's that's just one of the the changed behaviors and acres added to habitat. So we really keep track of those metrics too. Um, and other things can count as habitat as well. Things like just planting a bunch of grass, tall grasses at least. Hmm. Uh, those would be great for birds. So that can count as a habitat. Uh, flowering cover crops are great for pollinators, so that can count as a habitat. Um, really just trying to uh, get as many wildlife benefits on the ground as possible. Um, and that's what we're really planning on doing. And then outside of that, we move more toward the nutrient reduction section. So as they implement, as farmers or landowners implement these conservation programs, um, we can estimate how many pounds of nitrogen and phosphorus uh, get uh, avoided uh, being put in the river. So we can add that to our metric and uh, put it in our annual report and show that we are we're getting our job done. So it's a it's a lot of metrics that we do have to take into account, but they all sort of relate to each other, which which is nice. Yeah, and I find with at least small nonprofits, they're very metrics based, right? A lot of these decisions have to be based in data because, you know, uh, everything's razor thin, 
you know, yep, exactly. you're, you're working off grants or something like that and, and, you know, donations and you've got to prove what you're able to do. So I'm exactly. sure those metrics of like, hey, we were able to pull this amount of nitrogen and this amount of phosphorus from the uh, soil. I'm sure that's probably a really, you know, rewarding for you, but also yep. good for someone who might be a potential donor or, you know, decision maker to see as well. Exactly. And we, we always try to overshoot. So yeah. we, can, we can always feel really good about ourselves and sort of brag to the community. Yeah. Uh, makes It makes us feel better about ourselves. And it really just makes us that much of a, a more attractive um, nonprofit to sort of invest in in the future. Yeah, I love that. I love the whole process of renaturalization. Like you don't, yeah. that's one of the things, you know, as much as I love conservation, it does get frustrating when Everything seems to be kind of a doom and gloom story, which yeah. you can get focused on that. And a lot of times it is, but there are people such as yourself that are doing great things. And there are, you know, people such as these farmers that are willing to do that as well. Willing exactly. to, uh, you know, do some of these programs that help, like you mentioned, help everyone in the area. Exactly. Yeah. That's always good to hear. Um, well, kind of on that note, but on the flip side, <laughs> I've spoken with a lot of nonprofits who have encountered brand new obstacles recently uh, with the new administration. So has the Prairie Rivers of Iowa experienced any new difficulties with the current uh, administration that's happening now? I, it's hard to say. Um, the Our main government liaisons are a lot of local governments. Uh, so we'll work a lot with cities and counties and states so federally, we don't do a lot of interaction outside of uh, securing funding for landowners. Um, the only issue that I personally have run into has been uh, sort of a restructuring of the USDA. Um, we do sure. a lot of work with them, especially within agricultural systems. And then they have a division uh, that's called the uh, the Natural Resources Conservation. Um, forgot what the S stands for, but... Um, service, the Natural Resource Conservation Service. And they're, they're having a, a big restructuring, which can get a little dicey to work your way around. But yeah. we have a lot of uh, employees of the NRCS that, um, that, has, that have really been uh, involved in our work in the past. So we have really good contacts to sort of work around that, that new extra level of bureaucracy that's being restructured. So um, luckily we've been around for a while. So having, having these extra connections makes the process a little more streamlined and we're already on good terms with many people at our local USDA offices. So um, not too many, uh, not too many experiences outside of that with the federal administration. Hey, that's good to hear. I mean, I've talked yeah. to some nonprofits where they're just like, you know, yeah, where they've encountered some issues. So you never yeah. really know. It's always kind of something, um, you know, that could change. Um, yeah, exactly. But yeah, so before this, and we talked about this a little bit, but you were a research assistant with, assistant with Iowa State University and a seasonal yep. field biologist with Tufts University, where you studied grasslands and pollinators in southern Iowa and northern Miss Missouri. Mm -hmm. Um so, uh, you know, I've read numbers of declining or excuse me, reports of declining numbers of insects and pollinators in, in specific. Have yep. you seen any trends with your personal work that either confirm or denies that or is it just kind of tough to say? 
It's a little tough to say. Um, my research, uh, when I worked for Iowa State and Tufts, really only uh, spanned about four years. So having that short of amount of time is yeah. really, it's kind of difficult to tell. Um, I mean, I've seen variation between different years. So um, different environmental factors like rain really take uh, a huge uh, toll on some of these these pollinators or these insects, especially if they nest underground, they kind of get flooded around. Oh, right. So, yeah, for sure. Um, it's, it's interesting to see the trends within years, but for me personally, it's a little too soon to tell, um, at least with my own eyes. But I, I do tend to trust uh, reports and peer-reviewed studies that come out. So I, it's something that I've been concerned about. Yeah. Um, even recently, uh, as, part of, as part of this grant that I'm working on at Prairie Rivers, uh, we do focus a lot on pollinator habitat. And on top of that, we do have to pay attention to different declining, rare, and endangered species that might be moving into these new pollinator habitats. Um, so one of the species we do work with is the rusty patch bumblebee, which is the only bee in the lower 48 states that's on the endangered species list. Um, and it, it's really mainly found in Minnesota, Iowa, and Illinois, and a little bit in Wisconsin. So it's one of our, it's one of our main endangered species that we, that we have to work with. So, um, their numbers have been kind of in flux and in free fall at certain points in time. Yeah. So um, it's going to be interesting taking a look at that over the next couple of years, as well as the other bee species that are uh, not technically on the endangered species list or listed as threatened by the U.S., but by other countries and nonprofits. Um, just seeing how how their populations go and whether people working on these uh new habitats that we're setting up can actually find them and monitor them and see what the, see what the population metrics would be. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Um, yeah, my mom, um, you know, I think for a couple of years tried her best at, uh, beekeeping and, you know, it just, she had a, you know, her colony to collapse or collapse completely. I think it was yeah. like a couple of winters ago. Um, yeah. I think because there was like a warm spell and then they came out and then there was another cold spell. Uh, yeah, that seems to happen like she's in a bee keeping. Yeah, when I was when I was working at Iowa State, um, I did a lot of research on honeybees. And uh, over a couple of years, we had a winter that was relatively mild. So around a third to half of our colonies were fine. But this most recent winter just kind of slammed them. So we've had a lot of we've had a lot of losses. Because it was rough. Yeah. It was a rough winter. Yep. Very rough winter. Um both that and sort of a period of like extreme cold warming, then right. more extreme cold. And it's a, uh, it took a, it took a huge toll. So, um, moving into the future, it's going to be interesting seeing what happens yeah. and, uh, where the research goes. So, oh my. uh, sort of morbid curiosity on that part. But. Yeah. Yeah. I think that was exactly what happened to my mom's, uh, yeah, yeah. my mom's piece, um, was just warm and cold and, and it just, they were just getting jerked around too much by the weather. And it just yep. wasn't, uh, you know, they, they couldn't um, survive. Well, cool. So how can people help? How can people help uh, Prairie Rivers of Iowa? What can people do both locally um, and also extending this nationally? Um, yep. You know, help their local uh, watersheds 
and make sure um, that they're doing the right thing by, by the standards you guys have set forth. Yeah, so I guess nationally, if you're thinking watershed levels, just pay attention to what you either pour down the drain or pour into your lawn or pour down the street. Everything in terms of liquid and water is connected. So all of that water that you're pouring out somewhere needs to drain to a certain part of uh, either the country or a certain part of a river or stream system. So just be mindful of what you're putting on your land and what you're putting um, just around your lawn and in the streets or what you're, what you're putting into that system. Um, really keep in mind that uh, a lot of the stuff that gets put onto land needs to go somewhere. Um, whether or not it's going to go down into the soil or into a river is it really up to you and up to proper land management. Um, if you if you're a if you're a homeowner, try to try to reduce your lawn a little bit. Yeah. Um, the love native. of God, reduce the yeah. lawn. Uh, plant native, or if you do really want a lawn, consider adding a little bit of clover in it, um, something that's flowering to help the pollinators. Um, that's a that's a pretty good. A good first step to sort of wean your way off the lawn. Um, and then I guess just to directly help Prairie Rivers, um, we do take donations. It's uh, We are a nonprofit, so donations are always welcome. And we're trying a new system. Uh, this is mainly more toward Iowa and the Midwest, but we are setting up a native seed bank for individual landowners who are interested in starting to plant native. Uh, they can either nice. donate seeds that they find in their yards or in their lawns or their gardens. Um, as long as it's native, we'll take it. And then in exchange, we give them other species that are either easy to plant or in high abundance. And it really, it's really trying to get conservation more in the hands of normal citizens rather than um, people who are really garden-focused. Yeah. Trying to make it a little more accessible, yeah. I like that. That's a great idea, yeah. just having a local seed bank of yeah. you know, indigenous uh, plants. Yep, so people in the Midwest, if they have uh, seeds that they're not using, we will take them off your hands. Nice. Um, and real quick, because we did mention it, what are common things that people pour down the drain that cause a big headache for you? Um, it's really things that get into the it's things that get into the local watershed. So say you're washing your car out in your driveway and you're putting a lot of a lot of wax and soap and other shining chemicals or things on it um, that'll eventually get into the streets which will run down into a stream and might kind of cause a little bit of issue so keep in mind when you're when you're either washing a car or doing something out in the lawn uh, and you're either dumping uh, soap or chemicals or if you're painting something outside and you're dumping paint yeah. just uh just know that it that is going somewhere it's not out of sight out of mind it's going it's going into your watershed so one way or another you're either going to have to deal with that in your drinking water or someone is so um just be mindful uh if you do need to wash your car outside use as little soap as possible um try to limit your your application of uh either uh, pesticides or herbicides or fertilizer or paint or whatever you're doing outside, limit that flow into the street and try to keep it contained in your own little area. Um, and as far as things going down the drain, it really depends on where that drain is flowing to. So I would research 
where where your sewer system goes or where your house drains to. It'll give you a little more insight into how you're connected to the outside world. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. You know, that's a super important thing to keep in mind is whether yeah. it ends up in your drinking water or in the food that you're mm-hmm. going to be eating. It will some it'll somehow end up back either in you or in your neighbor's. Um, yep, exactly. In, in probably not a very positive way. Uh, <laughs> careful. So. Well, David, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate this. This has been super helpful. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, as as you keep, uh, you know, you guys keep progressing, let's stay in touch. Um, I think this is very insightful, so I appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for having me on the show. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. Um, well, cool. You take care. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for joining. If you liked that episode, feel free to rate, view, and subscribe. That actually really helps. If you haven't seen it yet, take a look at the accompanying blog. Don't forget your boots.com where you can read more and see photos for all the interviews. Until next time, take care.